today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, step one to revolutionize your agency's acquisition culture. Lift up every example you can find of people who are doing this and, you know, praise them. It doesn't have, don't give me excuses about it. I can't promote and bonus because of, you know, the, you know, federal rule. No, just you know, praise them. Stop eliminating the best candidates to go into public service. Anything that you can do to simplify that so you can get qualified candidates who lots of people are willing to serve but the burden is huge. And the establishment of the chief data officer in government is no small feat. We still have that unique opportunity to build what's essentially a new profession in the federal government. It's a really pivotal and transformational role that can continue to significantly benefit the collection and analysis of dated agencies. It's Friday, February 18th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Office of Management and Budget is claiming success on executing the president's management agenda. Jason Miller, the deputy director for management at OMB, writes the federal government's made, quote, tangible progress on the agenda's three priorities. Miller cites pulse check survey results OMB released in January is one example of progress on the first priority, strengthening and empowering the federal workforce. The new chief information officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs is looking for a, quote, deep interlock between his agency and the vendors it works with. Kurt Del Bene says agencies will get better outcomes with more specific demands from private sector staff working with agencies. Del Bene says government IT people shouldn't be afraid to challenge vendors when it's necessary. You can read more on these and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Nominations are open now for the best bosses in federal IT. We're going to honor the CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, and other technology leaders that are driving modernization and innovation all over the federal government. You can file the nomination now, and the list of finalists will come out March 28th. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The new head of acquisition for the Army says he doesn't need any new authorities or processes to buy technology. Doug Bush says it's a question of using the ones he already has well. Joe Jordan's president and CEO of Actaparo. He's former administrator of federal procurement policy. And I confess, Joe, when I read Jackson Barnett's story on fedscoop.com and saw that passage, saw that quote, I thought, I know Jordan has something to say about this. What say you about someone in acquisition saying, I have all the authorities I need. I just need to do it right. Welcome, my friend. Thanks, Francis. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, that really was heartwarming to read. Um, couldn't agree more. I think, you know, he, he's a former uh, congressional staffer from Haskin. He, he understands that there's absolutely a, play, a time and place for uh, statutory improvements to our acquisition system and processes. Uh, but right now, it's more about let's use the authorities we have. We've got a lot uh, of rules and tools that allow us to do this well, to do it more efficiently. And let's focus on that more than statutory changes. You know, it, it, it was just so great to, to hear that. Um, and you know, it really harkens back to something I've been saying for a long time. And my predecessor, Steve Kelman, said for years before that, which is where I got it, which is the federal acquisition regulation has 53 parts. You don't need to make it past FAR Part 1.1 to read the role of the acquisition team member is to exercise personal initiative, personal initiative, not 
hey, what am I being told? I follow all the rules exactly as said. Personal initiative and sound business judgment and providing the best value product or service to meet the customer's needs. And it's got a big, long sentence that says, basically, if it's comporting with that personal initiative and sound business judgment, it isn't violating some specific statute or regulation or executive order, then you should do it. It is permissible. But yet, you know, whether it's uh, myself, other people in leadership, um, you know, or the other secretary, when you go around and talk to acquisition or contracting officers and other acquisition officials, you don't always hear that attitude, right? You hear, well, the FAR didn't tell me how to do it, so I don't think I can do that. And and while he was specifically referring to um, the procurement of software to complete the Army's mission, and I do think that's a place where innovation is critical, and so using all the tools available is critically important. Um, I I think that that spirit should be embraced broadly across all of DOD and FedSIP. I'll give you a really hard time for having memorized FAR Part One uh, Point One at some point in the future, not today. But the, what? What? How do we get to the point where uh, that he made though, which is the key is to using these authorities well, and how do we do that at the senior procurement executive level where he is as the ASO Alt in the Army now? How do we do that at the program level, and how do we do that at the CO level, Joe? Yeah, great question, Francis. I think. You know, what I've seen work is really a combination of two things, training and to the extent possible, don't make it super boring. Hey, read this thing training. But, you know, we tried interactive things. We tried gaming where, um, you know, not playing Fortnite and real fun gaming, but doing (laughs) some, you know, you watch some videos, you get some medals, not again, DOD medals, but, you know, virtual things, recognition, certificates you can print out, um, things like that, that make you kind of a little bit want to do the training and and understand those tools and rules. And then second, it's about embracing kind of what I used to call smart risk taking, what the FAR calls is personal initiative, you know, embrace that. And that happens in two ways. One, lift up every example you can find of people who are doing this and, you know, praise them. It doesn't have, don't give me excuses about I can't promote and bonus because of, you know, the, you know, federal rule. No, just, you know, praise them, go out, send an email to Francis Rose and be like, wait till you hear about this awesome example of someone who took personal initiative using the new, you know, budget activity eight software digital technology pilot program rules. And here's what they did, because I know you and a number of folks, myself and a number of folks out in the community would bend over backwards to amplify those great stories and those positive messages. And then second, use your role in leadership to provide a screen for when someone does take personal initiative, does take a smart risk, and it doesn't work out great. And say, you know what? I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. Here are the facts of the case at the time. Here's the decision they made. It didn't work out. We'll learn from it. That's okay. That's how life is. And that is a good thing for the system. Even if in this one case, it didn't work out. Don't put that on the contracting officer. Don't put that on the individual program official. You're a leader. Live by what you said and embrace that. And then people will start doing it. I remember an incident, and I want to say it was three years or so ago now, and the Department of Homeland Security tried some kind of innovative acquisition approach. And I, I think the point is, I don't remember what the issue was then or what the problem was then. It didn't go well. And Soraya Correa and Chip Fulgham, who was the CFO at DHS at the time, came on Government Matters, came on my TV show and said, we blew it. The two of them, not DHS, the two of them, and here's what we learn. And I was like, I've never seen that before. And that 
sounds to me like exactly the kind of thing that you're talking about, where the senior leaders take the top cover, provide the top cover for the people who in the trenches who are trying to do it. Exactly right. You know, and if I was going to, and I love Soraya, as you know, and I, yes. I, you know, used to go to some of her reverse industry days and other innovative practices to have DHS reach out to vendors who may not already be in the Beltway Bandit community, but have great, in this case, software or other tools and services to provide uh, to further the mission and, you know, build bridges there and, and encourage that innovation. And I think what I would say to, you know, uh, Doug Bush is, look, I, I was asked to testify in front of Congress 13 times during my public service. Zero of those times was the impetus for the invitation. Uh, the people on the Hill wanted to tell me what a great job I was doing. So <laughs> it's already going to be, you know, Congress is going to exercise their oversight function and call you up from time to time and tell you what they think is going wrong. That's fine. That's table stakes for a job like acquisition, you know, in, in the army. But what you do with that time and, and that platform, uh, you know, can really send a signal to the folks, you know, under your who, who you're supposed to be leading. And that's where, you, you know, you don't say, oh, gosh, the, you know, this person, this group, this entity, you know, did wrong, but I'll make sure it doesn't happen again. No, you, you know, you can say, hey, it didn't go the way we'd all like, but that's OK. We're going to encourage smart risk taking. We're going to use the tools you've given and. After we feel like we're really um, using them across the board, then if we see areas for improvement, we'll come up to you and ask for statutory changes. And I feel like that would be so great for uh, our acquisition system. And I was, again, so happy to, to see him say that. You mentioned your uh, predecessor, Steve Kelman, and your immediate predecessor, Dan Gordon, at OFPP was the uh, originator of the Mythbusters program where he tried to get out there and you kind of continued that when you took office. How do you drive that forward in 2022? That because it sounds to me like it's the same message, Joe. That that the FAR isn't as prescriptive as people make it out to be. The legislation that exists that governs procurement isn't as prescriptive as people make it out to be. And so the mindset has to change. The culture has to change. How, what what will drive that change in 2022 versus when you tried to do it? Yeah. Well, you know, one great thing is whether it was when Dan was at OFPP, when I was at OFPP, when Ann, when Mike Wooten, um, hope you have been there, the, the constants are Matthew, Leslie, and Joni. So you've got this yeah. core leadership team and a, a lot of other wonderful people on the team. But, you know, this core leadership team has been there throughout these Mythbusters efforts and, and other kind of innovative improvement efforts and can help. So you're going from a running start, not a standing start. I think that's important. And I think another thing is, you know, when leaders – you know, uh, like Mr. Bush say, hey, the, the main issue is not that the FAR is rigid or prescriptive, as you say. There's all this flexibility. Look at it. Use it. Um, and when that kind of what people see, that is the attitude um, and when the of the leadership and when leadership kind of lives those values, I think you you, you can see these changes happen more quickly than usual, again, because we're going from a running start in some of these cases. All right. Well, you proved me right. <laughs> I love this. This is great. I Thanks knew you would have something to say, my friend. It's great to see yeah. you. And read uh, FAR 1.102D every day. It'll get you excited for the morning. There's no chance that's going to happen. <laughs> that's what I got you for. That's right. <laughs> You can find a link to the FedScoop story about Doug Bush in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. A reminder, the program's on hiatus Monday for the Washington's birthday holiday. Coming on the next Daily Scoop podcast on Tuesday, we'll go inside the partnership between the U.S. Digital Service and the U.S. Postal Service for testing kits. The COVID lead for USDS, Natalie Cates, and the Postal Service CIO, Prithra Mara, will be here on that program. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Tuesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Food and Drug Administration has a confirmed leader for the first time in 391 days. The Senate confirmed Dr. Robert Califf to serve as commissioner for the second time Tuesday. Terry Gertens, president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. She's former deputy assistant secretary of labor. Terry, welcome. It's great to see you again. The first thing I thought of when I saw the note about this confirmation was, okay, we have a food and drug administration commissioner we still have a ton of other open positions why do you think we're this far into an administration and we still have a ton of open positions i imagine it's not a simple answer is it terry welcome uh francis thank you it's great to be with you this morning and that's a great question and it's one that you know the good government groups have been talking about for i would say even decades Mm -hmm. at this point right how many political appointees do we need What's the right process to get them through? Uh, And there's really kind of, I think, three populations who are involved in this. One, it's the incumbent administration. And how do they find their candidates and how do they vet them? It's the Senate and all the committees and all of their different processes and all of the political incentives about whether to speed up or slow down those hearings. And then it's the individual candidates as well. The process is so burdensome and so invasive that you've got to ask yourself, who wants to do this anymore? We're seeing this in one respect uh, right now. There's a controversy. Uh, One of the uh, oversight groups has called for the Office of Management and Budget to uh, take another look at least at uh, the ethics waiver that Mina Shung, the USDS head, uh, has. And you know, I had a conversation off the record with a, a, a person in government, and my thought was the kind of person that we want to do that job probably has a pretty complicated financial life. That person probably has stock options, or I don't know. I, I'm, I'm My financial life isn't that complicated, but that person probably has a pretty sophisticated level of involvement in companies that he or she has been involved with over the years, and yet... Those I, I, and I don't know the the implications of what Pogo's proposing and and or the objections that they have, but it strikes me that's another example of how complicated it can be for somebody to choose and and it really is a choice, isn't it? Do I serve in government or do I unwind some of this thing that's going on in my personal life in, in order to be able to go serve? Well, you're right, Francis, and that's only one issue, right? Um, The modern tech startup, where so many of these technology people that we would love to have come into government, uh, where they get their start, stock options is a big portion of their compensation. So if you're going to ask someone to divest of all of their stock in order to come into government, and then you hope that they'll go back to their technology expertise when they're done, that's a huge burden. Um, There's also, I mean, Social media, for example, is another big vetting hurdle. And in today's situation or today's uh, culture, if you're going to ask someone 
about their entire social media history, the only people who are going to pass that bar are people who've never been on social media and are those the people you want to have come into government. So it's stock options, it's social media. And frankly, now, you know, that we have certain legalization rules around marijuana. If you're thinking that you want to get someone who's never, never, um, you know, taken uh, a whiff of marijuana, you're, you're running out of people who are going to pass the bar uh, or, or, you know, get over the bar for confirmation. And so we really have to ask ourselves, do we only want perfect people, right? Um, and that pool is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, I'll give you one example uh, from when I was uh, still had the television show. Uh, I asked a person to come on and I never even got a response numerous times, gave up after a while. Uh, a colleague of this person's told me later uh, that person doesn't want to do any media for anybody because that person would like to go back into the government at some point. And so that person's decision was, I'm just not going to appear anywhere for anybody about any topic and in order to keep the record clean. All right, I want to go back, Terry, to the first thing that you said in this conversation. And I think maybe you asked it as a rhetorical question, but I wonder if there's any consensus about the number. You told me before we started recording, the number of Senate-confirmed political appointees is 1,200 about out of about 4,000. Is there any consensus about how many political appointees and how many Senate-confirmed political appointees we do need? Um, I think the only consensus is that 1,200 is the wrong number. <laughs> <laughs> and it probably should be less. But exactly what it should be and um, what kinds of positions those should be, um, there is no consensus. You would need to get... Uh, a bipartisan, bicameral sort of look at where are the decision-making authorities where Congress wants to exercise oversight and make sure that those folks are Senate confirmed. But there are 4,000 positions, roughly, again, uh, that are political appointees. And I do think the Biden administration, as they were coming in, kind of understood the the lay of the land here, and we're prepared to get as many non-confirmed folks on the ground on day one as they possibly could. I think they had about 1,100 political appointees in position on day one. That's pretty remarkable, um, but they're still left with uh, a huge number of acting, a huge number of vacancies. Many of those vacancies are in oversight positions, agency IGs, agency CFOs, critical deputy directors and undersecretaries. So you've got acting people in crucial oversight positions that really, you know, as great as those people are and as willing as they are to serve, you're not as effective as you are when you have a Senate confirmed individual in the right position. Okay, so we'll ask about this particular circumstance as we see it now or more broadly, however you want to answer it is fine. Each of those three groups of people who have a piece of this process, what can they do to make it better? First, the the administration, this one, or an administration in the future, what can they do to be better prepared or to push more of these candidates through, have them ready to go? Well, one of the things they can do is really staff up the vetting process in the transition team, right? So, um, and again, here the Biden administration had a huge vetting operation, but it wasn't quite big enough. 
to make sure that you've got as many people going through the vetting process as you possibly can. Uh, they cast a wide net, they looked really broadly, and they're still slow in getting that through. So simplifying the vetting process as best you can um, to, to get uh, the right pool of folks and push them over to Congress. Individuals, um, it, what, well, one of the things that the, the system could do to make it easier for individuals is provide some transparency to the process. You know, if you're going to consent to be a nominee and you fill out reams and reams of paperwork and you send it all in and then you have no idea where you are in the process, you don't know if you're going to have a hearing in 60 days or 160 days. And even when you have a hearing, you don't know when, it, when it's going to get, when you're going to go through all the way to confirmation. It's an incredible burden for individuals. And so anything that you can do to simplify that so you can get qualified candidates who lots of people are willing to serve, but the burden is huge. And then in the Senate, we've got to figure out um, how to balance the political disincentives, right? There are, there, there's a lot of politics in play about the value of um, advancing nominees or withholding nominees and the impact that that makes on the effectiveness of the administration. So all three parties have roles, uh, but getting them all together to find consensus is a real challenge. I want to congratulate you on a huge night that you had Wednesday night. Uh, I have been privileged in the past to help you with the Elliot Richardson Prize ceremony. I had to miss Wednesday night, and I, I'm sorry about that because you honored two just giants in public service Wednesday night, didn't you, Terry? Uh, it was an incredible privilege, Francis, and thank you for your past support. Um, you know, Elliot Richardson is one of only two people in our country's history to serve in four cabinet level positions. Based on what we're just talking about in terms of the confirmation process, I'm not sure that that's even possible right. anymore. He wouldn't live long enough. But his uh, tradition of ethics and integrity and public service um, is one we honor with a biannual award. And this year we presented the award uh, jointly to Drs. Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci. And it was a remarkable conversation. Uh, the video for it is on our website. We'd invite uh, anybody who wants to see a conversation between two remarkable public servants about both the joys and privileges, but also the challenges of public service in today's environment. It's definitely worth a watch. Well, with, with decades of public service between them, they certainly have experienced both the highs and the lows. And uh, I, I just can't recommend enough anybody that has a chance to see or especially participate in the Richardson Prize ceremony. I can't commend it highly enough, Terry. Uh, it's great to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming on today. Always a pleasure, Francis. Thank you. You can find a link to that Napa event in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Chief Data Officers Council's out with a playbook now to guide the CDO community in a number of ways, and the Office of Personnel Management has a new job with a new person doing that job. Ted Kauk is Deputy Director for Human Capital Data Management and Modernization and Chief Data Officer at the Office of Personnel Management. He's Chair of the Chief Data Officers Council. Ted, welcome. Thanks for coming on. It's great to see you again. Tell me about that new job. I think people knew when you transitioned to OPM from USDA, you were going to be the CDO at OPM. What does a deputy director for human capital data management and modernization do, Ted? Welcome. Hi, Francis. It's it's great to be with you again. Um, yeah, it's it's been about four months since I've come over into the role uh, of deputy director 
for human capital data management modernization as also, and also as the chief data officer for the agency. Um, it's been exciting to join the team at OPM. Um, we're, as an agency, really well positioned to help rebuild and empower uh, the federal workforce. Um, as you know, we we lead the the world. We're the world's largest employer in the federal government. So we uh, we manage federal employee health care benefits. We process retirement actions and annuity payments, uh, federal job opportunities, uh, human resource policies. And so uh, the truth is that millions of workers really rely on OPM every day. And, and we're what Director Huja calls the people behind the people. So it's it's been great to join the OPM team. Um, and really with that mission comes stewardship over uh, really an immense amount of data. Uh, we collect and maintain data on 2.1 million uh, current federal employees across all federal agencies, 8.2 million enrollees in the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program, and 2.7 million federal retirees and annuitants. And so given that OPM collects data on the federal workforce across the employee life cycle, uh, from recruitment to retirement, uh, we as an agency really recognize we have an opportunity to become the premier hub for human capital data analysis, um, for delivering advanced analytics, uh, data standards, digital solutions, and then data all together that are really key enablers for strategic human capital management across the federal government. So um, in, in my role as the Deputy Director for Human Capital uh, Data Management Modernization, we have certain teams and capabilities that are really a key part of, uh, of this transformation. We, we manage OPM's Enterprise Human Resources Integration Data Warehouse, for example, which is the focal point for uh, providing statistical data about the federal civilian workforce. So it enables key tools like FedScope, uh, which allows users to access and analyze key data elements on the federal workforce. And then uh, we also oversee the human resources line of business, which develops common human capital data standards uh, that I align to all of the work that we are engaged in on our, on our overall data strategy, which is part of my chief data officer role. Uh, we really feel like all of these functions uh, can be aligned together to increase data quality and, and interoperability between agencies and shared service providers. So um, within that HCDMM function, uh, we are, we're, we're focused on hiring really great leadership and staff and teams to help um, create that alignment and help to sort of spearhead our overall data strategy efforts uh, at the agency. One of the things that's been challenging for the agency for a long time is managing those data standards that you referenced. Each agency sending data to OPM, different formats, and so on. What's the state of the art in that area right now, Ted? What are you doing and what are you able to do to uh, make that standards collection and data curation at OPM work better? Well, one of the steps we're doing is really uh, being mindful and focused on stakeholder outreach, uh, talking to shared service providers, uh, talking to agency chicos, uh, talking internally, and just thinking really carefully about uh, how we're going to engage and what are the right interventions we can take. Um, the first thing we're doing is we're, we're developing an agency data strategy, um, really thinking about how we can align all of the capabilities we have, all the data we have toward improving the quality and standardization of the data uh, in a really systematic way. So some of the things that we're focused on, uh, which came uh, in part from recommendations from the CDO Council, was really thinking about how we could implement government-wide dashboards, really leveraging our data as a strategic asset across the employee lifecycle to be able to provide insights to agencies, which then create incentives in the system, in the in the in the overall ecosystem, to improve the quality and standardization of the data. Um, having those tools and having that uh, that driver for 
uh, focus across the ecosystem, we feel is going to be one of the key opportunities for us to bring all these elements together. How much authority and how much autonomy do you have to set those standards, or is it just the responsibility of OPM to figure out a way how to coordinate all of them once the agency provides the data to you? Well, I, my philosophy, Francis, and this, this also extends to the CDO Council, is really we really need to couple good federal-wide policy, whether that's data policy or any policy really, with the incentive system to um, to ensure that it all kind of functions together in a, in a, as a well-oiled machine. So we're thinking about, again, how we set the standards, but also how we create the right incentives in the system to ensure that it all kind of works together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're focused on key uh, agency priorities and key federal-wide priorities that are part of the president's management agenda. Um, so when we're um, thinking about the tools that we can provide to support agencies in things like diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, um, the the drivers behind agencies' need for data, I think, really provides an opportunity to couple those two things together, the standards and the enforcement, but also the, the, the incentives to make it all work. One, I think, advantage that you have in the data community is there are very clear um, kind of guiding documents for you. You mentioned the PMA, the Evidence Act. Uh, the federal data strategy, those are kind of your guardrails to make sure that you're moving in the direction that you want. And they were all pretty clear and explicit, I think, aren't they, uh, about what the expectations are of individual CDOs and of the CDO community in general. Yeah, and I think we've made some significant progress. It's really been exciting to be part of of the, the overall CDO council as we've really worked together to try to improve our ability to leverage data as a strategic asset. Uh, it's exciting that we're at just about 90 chief data officers working at agencies across government, just thinking back uh, over the past couple of years. It's just uh, incredible. Uh, and we feel like we still we still have that unique opportunity to build what's essentially a new profession in the federal government. It's a really pivotal and transformational role that can continue to significantly benefit the collection and an- analysis of data agencies. Uh, we worked this year to develop a real foundation for that profession, launching the CDO Council website, um, surveying our members to understand where they are and really trying to outline some steps that CDOs can take at agencies to lead that data-driven transformation, um, developing things like the CDO playbook, uh, where we highlighted some key strategies that agencies can, uh, agency CDOs can take to embrace the role of the of the change agent and evangelist and, and really bring that that inspirational vision of what data can do for agencies uh, to to their to their programs and and to the people there. The CDO playbook I thought was interesting because it's a uh, it's a technique that I've seen other organizations obviously in government use, but it has uh, an interesting way to me of being instructive without being prescriptive. It it provides kind of best practices in a form that seems to be much more usable, quite frankly, than the typical white paper format that we saw for a thousand years in the federal government. What's been the response, the the feedback that you've gotten on the CDO playbook that came out, I think, uh, beginning of January? I think we've had, a, we've had a good response and we actually developed it collectively as a council. So it does really represent our collective knowledge about, about what tends to work well in terms of implementation. I mean, we know that, that the federal data strategy has those key foundational actions that we need to take. And I think, again, this, this comes with coupling policy with the incentives. We really have as, as CDOs to, to make it work at our agencies, to build the relationships, to show value through quick wins. That's essentially the emphasis that we place within the CDO playbook. You know, we, we really do need to recognize that this is a new profession and that 
each federal agency is at different points and are going to have different entry points. So, you know, what we've seen is some CDOs uh, have already been able to cultivate and sort of accumulate resources like large data science teams to leverage advanced analytics and derive meaningful insights across the enterprise. I think of, of State Department with uh, with Matthew Gravis as a CDO there and, and Janice DeGarmo, who's helped spearhead that work, uh, to my experience at USDA with enterprise analytics. And then we've got others who are really, you know, working to obtain the budget and staffing resources that are going to be important for them to carry out those initiatives. So the playbook really represents, you know, where we are, some CDOs having been in those roles for just uh, for under a year, agencies with, you know, data silos that have been placed for decades and, and trying to think about how CDOs get started and really capitalize on the on the really profound opportunities. And, and that really stems from delivering value early uh, and then providing the capabilities that build the credibility and distinguish themselves because we know things like data governance and data maturity take a little bit longer to to implement. And so getting that early buy-in is really a key part of, of getting them as, themselves a seat at the leadership table at their agencies. When you rolled out the CDO playbook, Ted, you uh, posted about it and some of the other things that the CDO Council accomplished uh, in 2021 under the title Celebrating a Successful 2021. What does a successful 2022 look like in your view for the CDO Council as an organization and for more broadly, the CDO community across government. Well, we did we did uh, take some really foundational steps this last year. I think that helped us to gain uh, a common language for engaging in these activities. Uh, several of the foundational reports uh, that we are still planning to publish in the next month or so are around the key capabilities that the council is charged with implementing. And those are best practices for, for data sharing, for data inventory. So we're excited that those documents will be published in the near future. And they really are uh, spurring a lot of the conversation now that we have that common language to strategize about how we have a bigger impact in 2022. Um, a big area of focus for, for CDOs and for agencies in general has really been about, and I think this goes back to the PMA uh, uh, around uh, empowering the workforce, around the data skills that agencies need, um, this this last year, we were partnering on um, a federal-wide data science hiring action, which was a really successful effort um, to, to bring talent into the government. Agency CDOs have been focused on implementing data skills programs. And yet we hear that that is an area where we just have such a tremendous opportunity to continue to focus on the broader workforce with data literacy and data acumen. So our data skills working group has been very productive. Uh, but I, I has already set a pretty ambitious agenda for this year to focus on things like data, data culture, uh, really showcasing the success stories, developing uh, potentially things like government-wide training programs and, and even training curricula, uh, and, and really going to dig into how we continue to, to broaden the impact of the council. So I think skills and training and, and, and the data culture is one area that we see as a major opportunity. We're also thinking about things like shared services. Uh, we know that there's been models for other uh, councils and communities that have developed over time where we're thinking about enterprise services has been uh, very, very impactful. And so we're, we're, we're keeping our eye on, on those opportunities as well uh, as, as we start to really understand what the needs are for the CEO community overall. A ton of stuff to keep up with, uh, Ted, and I look forward to having you come back and discuss it with me more as things develop. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Francis. As always, good to see you. You can find a link to Ted's LinkedIn post and the CDO playbook in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, 
Thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The next Daily Scoop podcast is Tuesday, inside the USDS collaboration with Postal Service on COVID tests. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening.